0: ladies and gentlemen welcome to the confluence cast presented by columbus underground we are a weekly columbus centric podcast focusing on the civics lifestyle entertainment and people of our city i'm your host tim fulton this week i sat down with chris davison he is the head brewer at wolfs ridge brewing We went deep into sour beers, the brewing process, the brewing community here in Columbus, what other breweries in town you should be checking out, why Columbus is a young beer scene, and why that's a good thing. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, The Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com slash confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored this week by Little Rock Bar. Little Rock Bar is located at 944 North 4th Street in Italian Village. With 30 beers on tap, Little Rock Bar has happy hour from 4 to 8 p.m. every day. Every Tuesday, get $3 draft beers all night while you enjoy Rock Your Cock Off Karaoke, wednesdays is everybody's a comedian hosted by travis haywisher it's like trivia but you prove your snark instead of smarts info hours and upcoming events at littlerockbar.net everyone's night should have a little rock enjoy the interview sitting down here with chris davison the head brewer at wolf's ridge brewing chris how are you sir I'm doing great today. Good. We are sitting here at the Idea Foundry sampling the recent sour beer that you guys released, Terre du Sauvage. It is delicious. First of all, you guys are releasing another sour beer. What's
1: that one called? Red Legacy. It's a Flanders Red Ale. Um, And uh, compared to Terre du Sauvage, uh, which was a three-month beer that was fermented in the barrel with a mixed culture of different yeasts and bacteria and it was kind of designed as a production uh, sour for us so i wanted to be able to produce a decent quantity of sour beer regularly and have it in our tap room or on store shelves rather than a flash in the pan once a year for the next five years which okay. is the way we could have gone um had we gone longer term so red legacy is the opposite of that and that was the uh I guess the second sour beer that I ever brewed at Wolf's Ridge. And it was in the barrel for 16 months. Okay. And And we should, and
0: just to cut you off here, we should say that Wolf's Ridge Brewing is a, is a restaurant and tap room located just north of downtown on North 4th street. You said production beer. What's, and I understand that to mean basically you just want to be able to produce a lot of it or Mm -hmm. you want to be able to keep producing it. What's the difference between a production beer and what would you call it a one-off?
1: Yeah, kind of. Um, So we did rebrew Red Legacy into the same barrels, the same yeast culture, survived in in those barrels and um, is already fermenting away on a new batch. But because of the time commitment, 16 months, um, it's not really going to ever be a beer that is always available. Okay. Uh, We did. So Red Legacy is special. It is very special, yeah. Especially because of that time commitment for us right now. Um, you know, that's the longest aged beer we've ever released on a larger scale. Okay. But it was still only 500 bottles. Uh, the same, uh, there, there were more barrels, I guess. But the the single run of Terre de Sauvage that we did in May uh, yielded 1,500 barrels plus about 25 kegs. And um, for Red Legacy, we're gonna we got 500 bottles and about 20 kegs. And that's all going to be gone by um, hopefully July 1st, if not uh, the kegs may last a couple of weeks um, and make their way around town a little bit. And I'll save a little bit back at the brewery for special occasions, but that beer is going to be gone in a day. Uh, Terre de Sauvage will be around uh, for a while. So yeah, that's, that's the main difference is that it, it'll be around um, all the time or most of the time in quantity.
0: And so how do you get, so why sour beer? It seems like a trend right now what is it just interesting to you that you get to do something new you've been brewing at Wolf's Ridge for around about three years yeah. you were at
1: Columbus Brewing before that Yep. why sour beer I've uh I honestly always wanted to brew sour beer and that was one of the first things I started asking the owners at Wolf's Ridge when I got hired on was I wanted to do two things that they had never done before, arguably three. I wanted to brew lagers, okay. which um, the second beer that I personally designed as a recipe at Wolves Ridge was a smokes lager, which was scary for a lot of reasons because smoked beer is not always the fastest seller. But okay. um, it's turned into our most award-winning beer. Um, it's called Buchenrauch. Uh, but then the other two things I wanted to do was barrel aging and sour beer. And, and really that goes hand-in-hand, hand, at least for me is that you age uh, and maybe even ferment sour beer in a barrel. Uh, so within a year or less, uh, we started putting dire wolf or imperial stout into bourbon barrels and rum barrels. But uh, it took a little bit longer to start doing sours. And the main reason for that was um, there's a lot of expense and, as we talked about earlier, a longer time commitment sometimes for the okay. sour beer. But there's also a risk of cross-contamination. And I think it's somewhat
0: Cross-contamination over- because... I mean, they're in barrels. What are they? Um, So, because of
1: the different uh, yeasts and bacteria that are in there, and so even though um, the beer is contained within a barrel, and you may not see it leaking out of the barrel, okay, uh, it may hold pressure. Um, If you pull the bung off, some of the barrels, um, some pressure may actually escape, and you know you'll hear a rush of air come out. Um, And you call it the bung. Yeah, it okay. is It is a bung. And so it is a bunghole. It is a bunghole. Got it. Yep. So despite all of that, um, it's still a wood vessel and wood is porous. And mm-hmm. so, uh, for example, when uh, we were getting ready to package Red Legacy, we had to get it out of the barrels. And when we looked inside, after 16 months in our warm basement, uh, about a third of that barrel had evaporated. Um, oh, wow. Despite being closed up the entire time, the wood is porous enough that... Um, a lot of the water content evaporated out. But that's not cross-contamination. No, that's not cross-contamination, but that's evidence that the, the wood is porous. And so um, if air is getting in or out, so potentially can um, microscopic um, yeast or bacteria. Mm-hmm. And especially once you start moving that stuff around, if that barrel touches another barrel that's holding clean beer like direwolf, um, there may be yeast alive on the outside of that wood. That that's migrates locker, to the the right? wood. Uh, that's the Imperial Stout. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, there are stories of some breweries that store two barrels side by side. And, uh, um, one of them is Jester King down in Austin, Texas. And they recently re- released a beer. Um, I forget the name of it, but it was basically, um, it was all brewed to be one beer, I think. But, um. Some of it went into some sherry barrels, and there's, I guess, a unique set of yeast that ferment sherry wine. And even though the wine had been emptied and had been refilled with beer, that yeast was alive in that barrel, and that barrel had a unique flavor because of it. And then the barrels next to it tasted the same, even though they were not sherry barrels, and that yeast somehow... Through touching, through the air, whatever right. migrated into the other barrels. And so they thought that was a really cool special thing. Um there's another example. So the beer is essentially a happy accident. Yeah, exactly. It's not what they Um for. but it was also you know, a form of cross contamination. And then even beyond that is if you start using the same uh tanks, hoses, mm-hmm. gaskets, et cetera. Um for for sour beer and clean beer, um, the yeast and bacteria that we want in the sour beer to create that profile, we don't want in our normal beer. Okay, and if it makes its way into that normal beer and ferments it, it could cause overcarbonation. Uh, maybe bottle bombs um, where a bottle would explode because it continues to ferment and creates too much pressure it could cause off flavors or haze issues Um, and sometimes there are happy accident stories out there where brewers accidentally create sour beer that tastes good but more often than not it probably tastes really bad okay
0: Um, so let's now now that we've gone deep deep down (laughs) the path deep down the rabbit hole of cross-contamination and the bad things that can happen to brewing beer in the process what makes sour beer different is it you're doing a negative thing to beer but in a controlled way in order to make it taste good I feel like that's what you just inferred
1: well uh in my case I'm doing a I would say it's a positive thing because it's intended and I really like the outcome um, but I am a brewer that hates hearing the stories of the happy accident that right. um, that yields a beer that's so good somehow um accidentally soured stout that we're going to bottle it and sell it to you at a premium Mm -hmm. and it may be delicious, but I just kind of hate that story because to me it tells me that you did something careless and you're trying to salvage that. And I think there's a lot of cases where brewers say that that happened and it's this great beer, but it actually is really bad. But so
0: what is different from sour beer from like regular beer?
1: Um, so, but, but yeah, so the difference between sour beer and a regular beer kind of depends on your definition of sour. Okay. Um, when you're using the term sour then it probably just means there's some sort of acidic content to the beer right but sometimes people say sour and they're referring to a beer fermented with bretonomyces which is a form of yeast that does not create acidity but it does create the typical sour funky profile that's in a lot of sour beers and so what are we drinking right now so um terre de sauvage is a a mixed culture meaning there's bretonomyces which is creating um, a funky aroma and flavor but also there's lactobacillus which is creating um acid okay and it, and it's not a lot of flavor or aroma coming off of the lacto and that mixture is what um, creates the profile in this beer you can do a beer that's just like a very clean yeast like a Kolsch yeast plus lactobacillus and that's kind of what a berliner vice is oh okay where it's a very clean acidity it's not funky smelling um, you can do a, a beer like um, the Belgian Orval or Boulevard Saison um, Brett, which you can find on shelves around town. Okay. That are not sour, but they have a very funky, grassy, barnyardy aroma. Um, that is really good. And technically, some people will say those are all sours, but they're all drastically different. Okay. So, it kind of So, what's on your different about
0: this, just to translate mm-hmm. it a little bit, is simply you're adding another culture to it? Yeah. Got it.
1: Um, but it's n-
0: but it's not a, oh, I have to heat it up and cool it down a whole lot. Or it, it's not something where it's what I would think of as like a controlled burn. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean? Like if you want to age some brick, basically what you're doing is fucking it up. You're not fucking up the beer in a controlled way. It is truly just a different ingredient that's causing it to taste that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In this case, it's fully in- in- intentional. It is. These yeast and bacteria strains are famously a little bit more um, temperamental or difficult to work with. Okay. So they're less predictable over time as compared to our our standard ale yeast that we ferment Clear Sky and Driftwood and Howling Moon with. That yeast is super predictable. It behaves the same. Um, It's very forgiving. The cultures in our barrels uh, for Terre de Sauvage, for instance, um, are not very predictable. And So far. So then the
0: pre- how do you, as a brewer, you're putting everything together. Talk about, for those that don't know, what is the preparation process before you're putting it into the barrel?
1: What Wait, goes into it? So first we got we to get a barrel, and right now we're working mostly mostly with um, Spence barrels um, that previously held what I'll say a clean beer, a non-sour beer. Okay. So probably Dire Wolf or Imperial Stout is, is usually what's in the barrel beforehand, and and it's just very economical for us to reuse that barrel but in an ideal world all of our sour barrels would be x wine barrels are just a little bit more conducive to that environment and the flavor profile and where want. do you guys get those so most of our bourbon barrels are really all of our bourbon barrels are watershed but oh, we, okay. we do have some caribbean rum barrels a port barrel a sherry barrel and uh, uh we just added a marsala wine barrel from uh, italy to our sour fleet but um so we're starting with that spent barrel and if it has never had sour beer in it before then there's two ways we can acidify it Um, and typically i'll brew a recipe that's specifically designed to be soured since um, in our case we're fermenting sour beer in the barrel i don't want to ferment our sour beer in a stainless tank okay because we have to use those for our clean beer and i don't want to risk that cross-contamination we mentioned so and um, and part of that is the is a function
0: of the size of your space and the number very much so got it
1: yeah so we're fermenting we're treating the barrels like they're a tank and we'll brew a recipe to um, hopefully create the flavor profiles and attributes that we want um, with our grain Um, Low hopping rates help produce um, or facilitate um, higher acid levels. Mm -hmm. So um, our next terre de sauvage is um, colored green, and the gold is very acidic. It is a different grain bill. The
0: beer isn't green, though. No, no,
1: no. Yeah. That's just the color. So yeah, we're drinking Tardis Gold, um, right? very acidic version. Tardis green is the next one. And that one's dry hopped Okay, and it, um, it's, it's a lot, um, heavier on the hopping side, um, the IBUs, the bitterness levels are a lot higher. So, um, the lactobacillus couldn't, it really can't tolerate high IBUs. Mm -hmm. So it's not very acidic compared to this.
0: So when you, when you put the ingredients into the Mm -hmm. barrel, you basically do that, seal it up and then. Do you have to turn it? You just wait 16 months?
1: Um, so uh, so then we want to introduce the desired cultures, desired yeast strains. Okay. And so we may um, harvest them from a previous barrel or a culture we have on hand for some reason. We may buy a new set of uh, yeasts and bacteria um, through our yeast supplier, mm-hmm. um, which is White Labs, the same that most homebrewers use. You okay. can find at the homebrew shop. Um, but we, I so depending on the beer I'm creating, I'll select certain strains of bread or lactobacillus or what have you, and we can add those to the barrel. Or you can actually add a small amount of, um, of fermenting beer from another barrel, and the, the live yeast in that beer will inoculate um, the fresh wort, the fresh beer that you add to that barrel, and then okay. it'll start fermenting. But either way, it'll start going, and then a few days later, um, usually one to, to three days, you'll start seeing. Um, foam coming out of the top of the tank and you know, it's fermenting. It's creating carbon dioxide gas and foam
0: And so then it's time to seal it
1: up uh, so it's kind of always sealed but we have uh mungs that are especially designed f- to allow fermentation so they have a um, Center stopper that um, when there's enough pressure it pops up and then it goes kind of like back a t- turkey thermometer or whatever okay. And it has holes in it and it allows that gas and foam out so the barrel doesn't blow up. Gotcha and then when it's done that um that little stopper will sink back in and seal it up or so
0: how do you test it especially with a beer that you're going to be fermenting for 16 months how do you, you just sort of like okay i'm doing some research like you don't get to sample it no. as it goes
1: i mean we can sample from the barrel um throughout the process but before creating that recipe i have no guideline beyond my own research okay and what i've had from other brewers so i i Definitely do a lot of research before brewing into these barrels, but it's it's a big risk. There's a a large risk factor there, especially the longer that time commitment.
0: Now, how much sharing happens in that community? So you're looking at what other people have done, Mm -hmm. but are they you know putting out a blog entry about how here's how I did X Y Z thing? Because that seems pretty proprietary, right?
1: Uh, for the most part, that's one of the great things about craft beer is that. Um, There is a lot of sharing going on right now. Okay. Uh, There is right now, right now, especially there's more literature written books and articles and publications that talk about processes than ever before. There are actually blogs. There are webinars that I've listened in on from famous breweries around the country and how they do their thing. Um, There's a homebrew um, podcast Mm -hmm. that brings in um, really acclaimed professional brewers that give advice that applies to professional and homebrew. A systems because the processes are basically the same, they're just different, they're just different scales. Have you been on there? I have not personally been on there. You're
0: pretty good at talking inside baseball, <laughs> <laughs> trying a little bit to pull you into the general audience mm-hmm. sphere. You know, how did you get into this? You came out of Ohio State mm-hmm. long, probably back when I did, majored in political science and philosophy. How'd you start brewing?
1: I mean, I'm, I'm, I kind of came about it in a weird way. Uh, I didn't really drink a lot of alcohol when I was younger. Okay. And when I finally started drinking alcohol, it really was not beer. It was um, wine and spirits and things like that. And, okay. And um, I kind of was really turned off by... The macro commercials and the, the synthetic lifestyles that they promoted or, or claimed you would find if you drank their beer. And all that really turned me off.
0: The bar scene. You didn't like the bar scene. I didn't scene. like the
1: bar scene. I didn't like the commercial nature of you know Bud Light and you know saying it's a party to drink the beer. It it, that's not real I and didn't this really is like because
0: the, and this is why you were a philosophy major. yeah
1: um, and I also didn't like the flavor of a lot of those beers mm-hmm. and but as I got um, further along into what I was drinking uh, my brother um, really pointed me in the direction of imports and 10 years ago 12 years ago Everyone talked about imported beer. They didn't really talk about craft beer right. in the States. And craft beer did exist, but there were the most adventurous beer typically or the most accessible beer because craft beer was so small at the time was um, imported stuff from Germany or Belgium. Right. And so he kept telling me, drink this English beer, drink this Belgian beer. It's really um, strong or it's really flavorful or it's really unique. And um, so I started doing a lot of that. Then I started progressing into Samuel Adams and Great Lakes and some of the larger craft breweries and really found that I do like beer, um, but I like the flavor and I like the thought behind it. Um, um, I've told a lot of people that I really credit, so I, I hated the commercial um selling that the macro breweries did, but I really, um, latched on to the commercials that Samuel Adams would put out because yeah. they talked about processing ingredients. and, well, and
0: Showcasing their, their actual yeah, brewers exactly. and stuff like that. So, and it wasn't just chicks in bikinis.
1: Exactly. So that was, it was like more real. And so that kind of drew me in. And from there I just became the prototypical beer geek that, Um, stopped drinking the stuff I liked and, and only wanted to drink something new every day. Okay. And I used to review beer online, and I probably reviewed, you know, a new beer every day for two or three years straight. You
0: were the kind of beer geek who would try a different beer every day just because you wanted to see sort of like what was out there and what was mm. what was different yeah how did you take the step to being a brewer sure. did you have a home kid or yeah
1: I did so I began uh, home homebrewing um, I kind of taught myself because at the time I was working a second shift job and the homebrew club met in the evening okay and so I really couldn't access that but I that's one of those things I um, at least looking back during those first formative years as a homebrewer I really would recommend to someone interested in getting into home brewing or that homebrews and doesn't join a club is there are one or two local homebrew clubs and they're a great resource of people that are super passionate, super knowledgeable, that can really help lead you in the right direction, give you advice, you know, let, you know, like some of like their failures and why it happened and how to avoid it yourself. Mm-hmm. But I did a ton of research to try to set myself up for success and I homebrewed for a couple of years and I was brewing far more beer than I could drink. Okay. But as uh, I feel like almost every homebrewer will say at some point, like, Oh, like I should make a job out of this or this would be a really fun career. And when it's a hobby, of course it, it sounds really fun to just do that every day all day long right um, but you also hear a lot of professional brewers tell you it's not fun 100 percent of the time it's very dirty it's a lot of cleaning it's whatever else but that's its own thing but yeah so i thought i could i, I really wanted to do it i was super passionate about it and um, i started just applying um, and it took a couple of years because i didn't have any formal brewing education i didn't have any professional experience and Um, Now, on the other side of the table, I can tell you that at least once a month, I get a job application through my email saying, I'm a home brewer, Mm -hmm. like, do you need help? And anymore, that's just not enough for the most part to wind up at a brewery.
0: But you did translate your home brewing to Columbus Brewing Company. Yeah, so
1: I just, I got in good with uh, one of their sales reps okay. uh, Tony quarter. and uh, you know I I went to a lot of their events and um you know a couple of beer tastings with him just at, at people's houses and he uh, And your
0: goal was to get a job. My goal was to get a job okay. not
1: necessarily with them but in the industry and so he knew I was looking and and that's really um to this day, um, all my brewers at Wolf's Ridge came up from, from below. So they were previously servers or busters in our restaurant that um, were super passionate and interested. And so they were able to demonstrate their hard work and knowledge to me. And so I, I felt more comfortable teaching that person than trying to correct someone's bad habits or just blindly hire someone based on a resume. Um, as, but a larger, so a lot of the
0: people that work for you, we're not brewers before at correct, all, but yes. we're passionate about it, mm-hmm. may not have even done home brewing. I think what that translates into is what was important to you as work ethic. Exactly. And that you didn't mind training someone because you knew that they were going to work hard. Yep. It sounds like there's a lot of ins and outs to it, but it doesn't sound like it can't be taught.
1: Exactly. Yes. And that's, um, you know, earlier we, we were talking off air about. Um, whether there was brewing schools or not mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, accreditation there or, or how that all worked out. And there really isn't. But, it, you know, it's more of like a trade and an and apprenticeship kind of situation. And you can be taught um, there. And then and also every brewer kind of wants things done their own way. So we're doing something our things a little bit differently than Seven Sun, who's a little bit different than Columbus Brewing. Right. Um, but it's all the same thing in a roundabout way. Um, But yeah, you can, you can be taught. Um, So for me, it's definitely, I I want someone who's hardworking. If you're hardworking, then you're going to pay attention and you're going to, you're going to do what needs to be done. Um, You could be the smartest person in the world, but if you're not, you know, know a lot about beer, but if you're not going to work hard, then I don't want you in my brewery.
0: Right. Talk about, sort because there's no formal training, there's no licensing to this. There's no, no, you don't have to go to the state and prove that you can brew beer. It's not nope. like a, mm-hmm. even, you know, the person that cuts your hair is licensed. <laughs> um, what are the legal aspects though, that you have to keep in mind? You, you need to be aware of sort of the ABV of everything, right? Or is that just all taken care of on the back end?
1: Yeah. Yeah. we we need to track things from start to finish. Um, if you're not um, recording data on the day you brew the beer, until it's ready two weeks to 16 months later depending on what you're doing if mm-hmm. you're not tracking it that entire time then at the end you don't really know what you have with you know, on your hands at and least what's at that data scale.
0: is that just what's going into it
1: yeah so everything from ingredient lists um i was talking with the owner today even about like lot numbers on um, bags of malt because if okay. there were a product recall um conceivably if there was uh i don't know pesticide Uh, Contaminating the mall, we'd need to know where that came from and what lot, and and trace it all the way back. And so the government wants to know that kind of stuff, right? Um, So unless,
0: of course, you just want to empty out every tank, yeah, or just get rid of everything, yeah.
1: So yeah, that would save save uh, your ass in a lot of ways. So yeah, you want to know what you're putting in your beer and the quantities, and then you're you're measuring um, sugar content, which we refer to as gravity, and that's. That's how we determine alcohol. We determine um, sugar content before fermentation and after fermentation. Oh, okay. during, during fermentation, yeast turns that sugar into alcohol. Okay. Um, and so we don't have the equipment that can measure alcohol directly. That does exist, but it's expensive. Mm-hmm. So the roundabout way we do it the same way a homebrewer does it. You measure sugar content before and after and the difference, there's a formula you can plug it into that tells you how much alcohol you have and you guys are you have a fantastic kitchen
0: for food but you are first and foremost a brewery and while the business model may get a significant portion of their income from the restaurant and and the bar you guys do distribute wolf's ridge brewery yes we do and your location is special it is a a liquor license specifically that surrounds the fact that you are a brewery Mm -hmm. i'm just curious about it because There are a lot of what I've thought of as breweries that have popped up of like chains that have beer brewed on site. That business model is just interesting to me. Yeah. Especially those guys, you guys are distributing your beer, but those places don't really seem to be distributing Mm -hmm. the beer that they make outside of the restaurant.
1: Yeah, for the most part, that's correct. Um, I think a few... Do package beer. Um, I don't know if I have ever seen it in Ohio, but I think in some states you can buy Gordon Biersch okay. beer, maybe BJ's beer. Um, but most for the most part, you cannot. Um, and definitely in Ohio, I don't think you can. Like, you can find Hofbrauhaus beer, but I think it's brewed in Germany. Okay. Um, but you can find that six packs around town. I didn't realize they were a McBury. Um, yeah, they actually up. are. Uh, and I didn't really realize it until probably that, until they came to Columbus, but there's one in Cincinnati. They just built one in Cleveland. There's one in Louisville, right. There's probably like 10 other ones in the States.
0: When it is, I am using a pejorative term. Like sure. I am sort of making fun of them for yeah. sort of being a chain that brews
1: beer. What is your opinion of it? Um, I, I kind of go both ways. So I think it's less authentic, the more, Uh, Times you replicate that same thing. Okay, Um, you know and and authenticity is uh, Really important to me and my craft and what I'm doing right, but if um, On the other side of things if they're producing a good product then, you know, I I personally try to be accepting uh, within reason for these uh, um, You know chain uh, brew pubs. Mm -hmm. So Um, I'm someone who will happily, if the situation um, arises, enjoy a BJ's um, Piranha Pale Ale. I used to actually drink a lot of that beer as I used to live up near Polaris, Mm -hmm. near there when it first opened. But um, I will also tell you my heart sank when I realized that the Polaris location does not brew beer on site. Okay. They've got some giant tanks uh, behind some glass, but I think they're full of root beer or they're just serving tanks. They don't actually brew it there. It gets brought in from their Las Vegas brewery. Hmm but the one um i can't remember where they opened the second location easton i think they are brewing there maybe okay so i kind of uh, again it's less authentic if you're calling yourself a brew pub or brew house or whatever name they choose to, to call it if it's not actually brewed there right um but if the if the product is good then I'll happily enjoy it um but there's probably less room for creativity and freedom there mm-hmm. um it's not where I would send the craft beer nerd who wants something new and exciting right but on the other hand um you know Gordon Beer sh- makes really high quality German beer mm-hmm. I'm happy to drink it Hofbrauhaus does the same thing and I have a lot of fun when I go but I don't go Real often, so right. I got, I'm kind of I kind of go back and forth. Like when the Ale Trail first came out a couple of years ago, and since then, more and more people are arguing um, back and forth about do we include every brewery or let every brewery in the Columbus area mm-hmm. um, be part of that. And so there's like 38 in this year's Ale Trail book, and next year they'll probably be 50. And some people who want to complete every one don't want to see breweries on there that, in their eyes, aren't a real brewery. Right. But technically, they are. There are brewing beer there. Right. But they don't want to have to stop at Hofbrauhaus Andrium, and Ram and. Um, Gordon Biersch and BJ's and and maybe three different BJ's, you know, right. just because there are three. Um, so that kind of gets a little annoying. Um, and I can see that side of the, the coin.
0: Right. Well, and I don't want you to sh- throw shade at all, but what then is the difference between you and somebody who's in charge of brewing at some place like BJ's? Is it simply that they're sort of taking orders following a recipe and that's their job, nothing wrong with it. What is the difference?
1: Yeah, uh, largely that is the case. In most of these breweries, there is a small amount of freedom to brew your own recipes. Okay. Um, when the ex-head brewer at Gordon Beer, Keith Jackson, he now started his own brewery. It's called Combustion out in Pickerington. Okay. His last year there, they were starting to give him considerable freedom because I think to some extent they found out their business model is kind of outdated now, being centered around German beers. There's a, there, there's a lot of competition with German beer in Columbus now for them. Mm-hmm. So he was given a lot of freedom to brew his own beers. Um, there's a little bit of that at RAM but but yeah for the most part they're they're brewing core beers core brands and they're 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 adhering to a recipe adhering to whatever arbitrary rules uh, may be set up for that corporation because they want it to be exactly the same um all over well they want it
0: they want it to be replicatable exactly right
1: um so but sometimes they're i i find um some of it arbitrary so gordon Biersch famously um wanted to be hyper German. Mm-hmm. And so according to the Reinheitsgebot, which gets tossed around a lot, that's that German beer purity law Okay, um, that, you know, says beer can only be brewed with water, malt, and hops. And then later they added yeast. Um, okay. They originally created it. Um, they didn't know yeast existed hundreds of years ago, but um, so in order to be Reinheitsgebot proper, um, Gordon Biersch was not allowing their employees to dry hop beers. So, The head brewer would brew an ipa but he couldn't dry hop it which is an integral part in creating a good aromatic ipa Hmm. and that's the process of adding hops to fermented beer on the cold side right um they were not allowed to pump pure oxygen into their beer um after they uh, brewed it and that's an integral part to creating healthy yeast Um, every brewery in the country does that but they were pumping in um, purified compressed air and there's oxygen in that air, but it's not as ideal as pure oxygen. Right. And slowly some of those rules started coming away, but that was one of the things he had to deal with, um, because of the corporate nature, even though he knew better, he knew it would, would have better beer if you could um, change some of those rules. But
0: it's what he was hired to do
1: and he's not the boss. Exactly. So, so just yeah, like th- any job, right? Yeah. So yeah, the difference there is, um, at Wolf's Ridge, um, I've kind of been given complete freedom to do as I see fit to direct the program, to produce the best possible beer, Mm -hmm. to give it an identity. And
0: well, and you're still expected to brew the beers that were, sort of around and popular before, right? Um, yes, or you, no? You inherited some recipes. I, I
1: did inherit some recipes. Um, honestly, um, not a single recipe I brew today is the same as it was when I got hired. Okay. Um, a lot of the beers that were around are gone or have changed names because the recipe changed so drastically. Mm-hmm. Um, other ones like Clear Sky, our American Cream Ale is one of our flagship beers and it's t- spawned infused versions like daybreak the coffee version Uh as our best selling beer which
2: is delicious Um,
1: and that's just clear sky with vanilla and coffee added to it but clear sky today is not remotely resembling what it was three years ago when I first got hired and so that's one of the things that um, I can't thank the owners um, especially Alan Suter the um, head of the brewery at Wolf's Ridge Uh um, enough credit um, for my personal development there and allowing me to change the beer program is, as long as what I'm doing is working and it makes sense and whatever, like he he gives me free control. So, um, we're continuing to brew clear sky, but I, I did what I felt was right for that recipe. And so a cream ale traditionally has a high percentage of corn in it and originally it had zero corn. And so now it has 40% corn. There's a lot of corn in that beer now okay? because that's what a cream ale should be. And so for me, I'm very traditional, in how these classic styles are brewed a lot of times i'm buying very expensive imported grain from germany or belgium or england because it's the best quality grain or because it's what's traditional for a certain style And so that's another thing where in a corporate environment, you probably have a contract with a malt supplier for a very cheap price, but then it may also not be the best quality malt. Right. And you don't have a lot of freedom in, you know, know, developing recipes because you're all using the same grain in every recipe. Right. So it's harder to change that flavor profile. So, um, it's, it must be nice to have both
0: the leeway in the process and the price. Certainly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, and I think um, ultimately that's one of the reasons why the consumer has um, really latched onto us because whether they realize it or not, it's creating this really unique identity that we have that a lot of breweries don't have. Is I'm putting so much thought into some of these ingredients, um, regardless of price, and and that is something we're always conscious of, of course. And mm-hmm. you know, we're we are making money and trying. Yeah, because it does sure
0: translate we, to the end consumer for sure, right?
1: But. Um, you know, everything I do is, is thoughtful and with a purpose and, um, authentic and it has my style attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked to um, other customers or brewers that will like read a label and he'll be like, you definitely didn't write that label, but I think you wrote this one. And I'm like, how would you know that? And he's like, it just sounds like you would have said, it. <laughs> you know, and it has like my, my flair to it. But, and then that translates across like everything that we do. And so right. that's something that a uh, corporate, Mick Brewery, so to speak. Uh, they just can't do have, They cannot do that right. uh, by nature. Talk about the other people in Columbus that are doing good work. Okay. So, um, I mean, I came from Columbus Brewing Company and they still are arguably the best or one of the best breweries in the city. Um, they, um, I'm, I'm really excited to see their, uh, portfolio of brands expanded over the last year or two because mm-hmm. the entire time I was there and one of the reasons I was unhappy there was because I brewed IPA six days a week right for like two years straight um, and that's their best-selling beer for good reason but it just um, you know became more like a factory than a creative brewing job and that's you know why I got into the industry I loved the creative nature of brewing beer mm-hmm. as a home brewer at the time you know is a lot of ipa maybe a seasonal that was a flash in the pan and Bodhi once a month um and now you know you can find Bodie regularly in bottles that people wanted for so long and you know they're bottling creeper and they're they've got a scottish ale and a lager and a, and a pale ale or two and all these other brands um and so that's really exciting for me to watch um, them finally get to do things that they used to talk about doing all the time and they're all very very good beers Um, seven sun, um, is definitely again at the foreground. Um, they're doing, um, a lot of stuff with a similar mindset to what we're doing, but Mm -hmm. they have their own style. And I think you can see and taste it in their beer and their branding. Um, it has, um, Uh, Colin Vents um, uh, passion and and different styling behind some of those recipes. Mm -hmm. Um, They do a lot of really quirky beers, but they do a lot of like uh, really hop heavy beers, IPAs and double IPAs that are very, very good. And they're one of the other breweries in town that's starting to dabble in the um, quote unquote sour world. Um, Mm -hmm. So far, they've been doing mostly um, Brett beers, which are the ones that don't have acidity, but they are funky um, in flavor and aroma. And they've been very good. Um, And they've done a kettle sour which is um, a different process of um, quickly souring a beer um, versus fermenting it in the tank. You're kind of doing it before you boil it, um, and we don't necessarily have to get into, like, the technical nature of it. But not to say it's not a real sour, but it's not at all what uh, Terre de Sauvage is or what Mm -hmm. we're doing at Wolf's Ridge is. It's a completely different process. Okay. But they are building a facility for some of these more traditional barrel-aged sours. So. Um, definitely Columbus and Seven Sun. Um, every time I go to Lineage, um, there's a, a couple of beers that really impress me, uh, that I really dig. And they're doing a lot more very drinkable beers. Mm-hmm. And I do a lot of that myself. A, um, a large part of our portfolio is smaller ABV beers. Yeah. You know, we do bottle releases where people line up for flavored cream ale. That's a 5% beer. And most breweries around the country can't get away with that. It needs to be a double IPA or an Imperial stout or a barrel aged something. Right. Um, so that's really cool. And so I really dig a more drinkable lower alcohol beer and they do a lot of stuff like that that um, I really get into. Um, They're another brewery that's doing uh, kettle sours, Um, so um, if you want acidity, um, uh, those beers definitely have that. A couple of different Berliner Weisses, which is a wheat sour that came from Germany, and usually they add fruit to theirs, um, which is uh, unique, and uh, they're always adding different blends of fruit, which is pretty cool.
0: It feels as though there's a lot of breweries popping up in Columbus. Is Columbus unique in that, or is this a nationwide trend?
1: It definitely is a nationwide trend. When I... First started brewing professionally. Tell tell
0: me Columbus is great at it, though.
1: Oh, I think so. And I think we're doing a better job than a lot of cities are. Um, um, We've got a lot of uh, room to grow in not only numbers, but also in just, I don't know, community education. And um, I don't know know the right way to describe it. But I just feel like our beer scene isn't as mature as one that would be from, like, Portland, Maine, or Oregon. They're both huge beer scenes um, with great mature beer um, scenes there. Denver – Um, San Diego, you know, and a few other places, so uh, Chicago maybe. So um, there's some of these beer scenes that are super uh, mature. Um, Breweries have been there for a long time, producing um, boundary-pushing beer for a long time, and the consumer is well aware of that, and um, I think across the board they're buying up all the different styles, Mm -hmm. and right now Columbus is a very young beer scene, and so... Um, we've got a lot of quantity, and we're adding more. Uh, it seems like every week or more. Yeah. We're adding a new brewery or two, um, and that's really cool. But um, most of these breweries are less than five years old. And honestly, out of 38 on the Ale Trail book, I'd say or guess that at least 50% are less than two years old. Okay. So, um, you know, there's just a difference there in um, in the caliber mm-hmm. and experience of the brewers at a lot of these places, and also the consumer. because. Ten years ago, They're not as educated. there were two breweries, right. you know are there things that Columbus can do better or is it simply that we just haven't matured enough? I think it's, I think it's that because there's not a lot you can do to change the mindset of the consumer right now. A lot of the consumers in Columbus really are gravitating towards really happy IPAs yep. and that is the the fastest selling style across the country and has been, it's the fastest growing style still for like 10 years straight or something. Mm-hmm. But while I love a good IPA, there's a lack of subtlety and nuance and skill to some extent that goes into making a really happy beer versus like a really clean lager or a well done You know, one month or one year old um, barrel aged stout or a two year old barrel aged sour. A lot of the professional um, lore and books will talk about how you can hide up anything, you can hide any flaws with enough hops. You can't do that with a lager. And that's where they used to like praise like Budweiser because of the consistency of that super clean, neutral tasting product. And it's hard to do that. Um, And so there's a lot of breweries that are focusing on that. And it's a trendy thing and whatever else. But I feel like as the beer market, matures, they are going to see more and more people wanting session beers that are lower in alcohol. Right. And, you know, they're going to gravitate back towards those German lagers. You know, there's a lot of German themed chain breweries for a reason because those beers are really drinkable. Right. Um, and they agree with a lot of people. So, um, I think, you know, that, that's almost a metamorphosis of the craft drinker as a whole Again, kind of how I tracked my progress as a brewer or a beer drinker. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into, big sweet stouts and IPAs. And then I got into bear laid stouts and then I got into, um, sours. And then after all of that, like my palate just felt tired of always drinking high alcohol or super strongly flavored right. beers or whatever else. And then all of a sudden, all I wanted to drink was German lager. Right. And I tell people all the time, my favorite style is Helles lager. And my favorite beer to drink at Woolridge is a 5% German Helles lager. It's like a beer that is like the way beer, um, tastes or the way you imagine beer. If someone just says beer and you think of one thing, usually it's this golden, um, really drinkable beer, right? And that's kind of what Helleslager is. Um, but there's still a lot of flavor in how we're doing it versus, you know, some other breweries. So I think that, you know, that's just a maturing of my palate and my tastes. And some people may never come down from wanting barrel aged and high ABV beers, but I think a lot of people, um, it's where the market will go. Yeah. I think that's where the market will go over time. Yeah. Cool. Chris, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite brewer. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at infotheconfluencecast.com. At Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week.